Um, I would invite you to take a minute and pray with me before we dive back into Genesis just to talk to God, to prepare our hearts, and to uh, settle the cares of this week. Father, we are uh, mindful when people like Wilda and Sherry leave this planet that they go to a, a far better existence. And Sherry and Wilda's first Sunday morning in eternity with you is, is something to rejoice over. But God, we ask that uh, for the hearts that are hurting for the loss of both Wilda and Sherry this week, that you would be near their family. Uh, especially, God, we ask that uh, in Dave's case, he's watched his wife deteriorate. And we ask that you would use the church family to strengthen him. Uh, truly, Father, uh, cause the community to come around him and encourage his heart. Remind him, Father, of the existence that Sherry enjoys now. God, we thank you for the privilege of looking into your word this morning. And, and we take it very lightly. I'm aware of that, Father. Even um, in a setting like this, we take it lightly, and we want to take it more seriously. But we're distracted with the cares of this world. We sit here this morning and, and think about the price of gasoline, or what happened in the office this week, or what our children are doing or aren't, should be doing or parents are doing. And God, there's so many distractions. I ask that you would help us to focus. I ask, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear in such a way that your truth would be revealed to us. Our emotions are prepared, Father, because we've sang. But God, we ask that you help our minds to focus on your word. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have uh, seen a particular YouTube download in the last few months. Um, it's one of the most popular downloads in the last seven or eight months, and it has to do with a debate, a presidential debate that took place. And uh, there were six Republicans on the platform, and uh, what I'm about to share with you is not an endorsement of any particular candidate. Um, but there was a, a, a video captured of a question that was asked of candidate Mike Huckabee. Uh, and it was asked by a CNN analyst and, and host of CNN News, Wolf Blitzer. And the question that was asked of him was, um, do you believe in the literal 24-hour, six-day creation of the world? And the room went silent, waiting for his answer because a Christian had just been set up in front of the media and in front of the watching world. And he gave a great answer, and the crowd erupted with applause. That video has been downloaded over two million times on YouTube because people wanted to see his response. It's remarkable that the issue of creation is set up as an issue in which you can hope to stump someone in a presidential debate. As a matter of fact, Mike Huckabee's answer was, it's bothersome to me that that question is even raised as the qualifications of whether or not I belong in the office of the presidency. But since you asked, let me give you my opinion. And he went ahead and did that. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you especially those who call New Hope their church home 
You should be reminded of that every week when you drive in and you see the sign, New Hope. What is the hope that is within you? The hope and being able to give a defense, a ready answer. That's what Peter reminds us to be able to do. Mike Huckabee gave a ready answer. I think many Christians today, Western Christians, are not in a position to give a ready answer for the hope that is in you. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us to put on the whole armor of God. That's like steel plating. I'm afraid that many Christians that I run into are Velcro Christians. And everything from the world sticks to them. And the arrows of Satan quickly penetrate Velcro. What was on the heart of God when he instructed Moses to write this? It's Hebrew. Bereshit Elohim bara. A more modern translation in English, but the truth is still the same. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is what I think was on his heart, and it's from Isaiah 45.18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place but formed it to be inhabited. This is what I think was on his heart. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Isaiah 45, 18. The God who created, created for this reason that he recorded it in Genesis. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I think there's a great tendency on our part, as modern-day American Christians, to forget that when God wrote Bereshit, Elohim Barah. He didn't just write it for our time alone. It was written for ancient people as well. It was written for people who live in Africa, for people who live in China, for people who live in South America. It was written for Columbus. It was written for Cleopatra. It was written for the benefit of people who didn't live in the telescope, microscope age. They had to take it at its face value. It was also written for people like Peter Folger. He lived in 1667. And he would train his grandson, Benjamin Franklin, in the ways of God. It was written for a man by the name of William Oakham, who lived in England in 1337. He was a professor at Oxford University in the 1300s. And a young man entered his class to be trained by him. His name was William Tyndale. Tyndale House Publishers. It was written for Han Cho, who lived in 232 B.C., the creator of the Han Dynasty in China. Eventually, a man made his way to China by the name of Hudson Taylor, James Hudson Taylor. And he adopted a little boy by the name of Seng Zi, who lived in the Hunan province in the 1800s. And he taught Seng Zi about the things of God, that in the beginning God created and Sin Zi grew up in Hudson Taylor's home to help him be a missionary to the people of China. We forget that. That it wasn't just written for our generation and our time. God wrote it for all time. But it does speak to science. Bereshit Elohim 
Barah. Taken at its face value, it was written for a unique portion of God's creation. You. It wasn't written for the whales. It wasn't written for the butterflies. It was written for his human creation. And he expected us to take it at face value. So scripture is not an authenticator in the sense that we treat it as a science book. But where scripture speaks to science, it is authoritative. And we must take it that way. We don't understand it. Matter of fact, the issue of matter really messes scientists up. But this is what we have to accept. Hebrews 11.3 By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And this is messing with the minds of scientists today because they don't understand matter. But God said it's made out of what was not visible. He wrote that 2,000 years ago. You can't understand. Now last week, we looked at an examination of Scripture, the authenticity of Scripture as it speaks to creation. It started in the Old Testament, ended up in the New Testament. The Old Testament speaks to God's authoritative nature. The New Testament speaks to God's authoritative nature. What we agreed on last week, at least from my standpoint, I hope you agreed on it, is that you cannot pick and choose. Well, I believe the New Testament, but I don't believe the Old Testament. Or I believe the Old Testament, but I don't believe the New Testament. Scripture speaks to Scripture. Look at Psalms 102.25. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Go all the way forward in time to the New Testament. Hebrews 1.10. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Scripture is consistent. What it said 2,000 years before, it said 2,000 years later. God formed the earth. Now, I read you a quote last week from the National Academy of Science that I want to clarify for you a little bit. So I'm going to reread this quote to you because there were a lot of questions that came up as a result of it. This is the quote. Um, this is from a book, if you weren't here last week, that was distributed to public school systems two weeks ago all over the United States. And this book was uh, produced by the National Academy of Science to authenticate uh, the position that they take on evolution. And here's the statement. While the mechanisms of evolution are still under investigation... Scientists universally accept that the cosmos, our planet, and life evolved and can continue to evolve. Yet the teaching of evolution to school children is still a contentious issue. In science and in creationism, the NAS states unequivocally that creationism has no place in any science curriculum at any level. Now the reason I think there were a lot of questions that came back because a lot of people caught on that, that scientists universally accept that's a misstatement. That's their quote from the NAS, but scientists do not universally accept that evolution is how we got here. As a matter of fact, in the National Academy of Science, 93% of those surveyed claim to be atheists. Well, what would you expect them to say? Okay? So within the National Academy of Science, those who belong to that organization, 93% of them are atheists. And so there's no wonder that that statement came out. Now, there's two origins. This is what we landed on last week. Two origin philosophies that you can attach yourself to. Either God created it all, or He did not. The only two choices that you have. Everything is an irrational chance. Nothing times nothing equals everything would be the evolutionist position. 
Darwin explained the universe on the basis of external appearance, but the farther science goes behind the curtain, the deeper it digs in, the more it's left with a position in which it has to authenticate that God indeed is behind this. Now, that's a bold statement, but I'm going to back it up, and I'm going to take you there in just a moment. There's a book that was written, you may have seen it in the airports in the last number of years, called Darwin's Black Box. It's still available in bookstores today. It's a pretty good read. The man who wrote it is not a Christian. But essentially, this is what he said. The jig is up. This is his quote. There is no explanation for this universe apart from an intelligent creator. Not a Christian, but he understands. If you go deep enough, you have to understand that the deeper science is gone, the more it is driven to conclude that God gave us this incredibly complex planet and this universe around us. And science cannot explain it apart from God. Here's an example of how far science has come in the last few years. When you think of symphony music, you think of Mozart. When you think of cookbooks, books, you think of Betty Crocker. When you think of astronomy and the examination of the universe, you think of Dr. Alan Rex Sandage. Dr. Sandage, to those who understand astronomy, and it's not me, I just understand what I read and what I examine, Dr. Sandage is regarded as one of the world's, if not the world's, leading cosmologist, the one who examines the universe and studied under Edwin Hubble, as in the Hubble Telescope. In 1985, Dr. Sandage was to participate in a debate that took place in Dallas, Texas. Now understand about Dr. Sandage's background. He was raised in an atheist home, profoundly sworn atheist, Jewish ethnically in his culture. But Dr. Sandage went to this debate knowing that on the left side of the platform, there would be those participating in the debate who would be evolutionists, and those who would be on the right side of the platform, who would be creationist. Everyone else was seated on the platform, and Dr. Sandage got up from his seat in the auditorium to come to the front of the platform. Thousands of men, geophysicists, biologists, microbiologists, those who understand these sciences were there and watched to listen to what he had to say. They all expected him to sit with those whom you would call evolutionists. Let me read you his quote as he talked to the crowd in 1985 in Dallas. The Big Bang was a supernatural event that cannot be explained within the realms of physics as we know it. Science has taken us to the first event, but it can't take us further to the first cause. The sudden emergence of matter, space, time, and energy pointed to the need for some kind of transcendence. It is my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. It was only through the supernatural that I can understand the mystery of existence. With that, he stepped back from the podium and said to the crowd, as an aged man, I have decided to become a Christian and stepped over and sat down. He's still alive today. You can read his biography. 
his science drove him to understand Scripture was what it said it was. A leading astronomer. That's fun. Okay, amen. Isn't that good? You will find, I believe, from what I've studied and what I understand, many scientists today believe that evolution, the theory of evolution, is coming apart at the seams. And within perhaps your lifetime, perhaps within the next 30 years, people of the science world will step back and say, how did anyone ever believe the Darwinian dribble? Because science is taking them deeper. The universe, if it's created by an infinite being, we have to ask ourselves this. How in the world can we know anything about him if he is this awesome and this powerful? The only way we can know anything about him and what he did is if he chooses to tell us. Like in Psalm 19. Psalm 19.1 The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, day and night, everything reveals who God is. Everything speaks to him. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. It's a silent revelation. But nonetheless, it's loud. Their line has gone throughout all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them, he has placed a tent for the sun, meaning in the heavens. Follow this last part which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. My wife said that one of the things she'll remember most about our wedding is when I stood at the platform as she was coming down the aisle and I couldn't stop smiling. I couldn't stop hyperventilating either, but I couldn't stop smiling. And that's what Scripture's saying, is that as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, the sun rejoices, it's brilliant, it's so powerful. And then it says, as a strong man to run his course coming out feeling powerful, nothing is hidden from its heat. But this last part was a little bit of a mystery to those who study, study the universe because it says, its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end, meaning that the sun is in movement. Now for a long time, obviously, we thought, that the earth was the center of our solar system and everything revolved around it. And then through modern astronomy understood that actually the sun is the center of the solar system and all the planets rotate around that. But what this verse is saying is that the sun is actually moving. Modern astronomy has discovered that indeed our sun as a part of the Milky Way galaxy is actually moving through the universe. It's not stationary. And that's what the psalmist is declaring. God, you're so glorious. Even the sun is in movement. And this was written 3,000 years ago. How could the psalmist have known that? The only way we're going to know about God and how he created and what he did is if he chooses to reveal it to us. We are natural. God is supernatural. Look at 1 Peter 1.20. 
Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, we can't know unless He chooses to tell us. It doesn't have its origin in us. It has its origin in Scripture. Now, I know last week felt a little bit like swimming in peanut butter in the way of getting through all that material. And some of this setting it up is like swimming in peanut butter again. But it's so important that foundationally we understand Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 before we take on the rest of the book. That's why I'm spending this amount of time in this. Now, we can know about God through creation. And as we read Genesis... We're tempted to believe that it's just a story about the creation of the universe and everything that's here. But let me read to you 14 of the known 26 originating items in the book of Genesis. This is why it's called the book of origins. We read and understand about the origin of order and complexity, the origin of the solar system, the origin of atmosphere and the hydrosphere, the origin of life, the origin of man, the origin of marriage, the origin of physical and moral evil, the origin of judgment on evil, the origin of salvation by grace through God's mercy, the origin of language, the origin of government, the origin of culture, the origin of nations, and the origin of religion. Those are 14 of the 26 known origins starting in the book of Genesis. So in Genesis 1-1 when it says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. We see foundationally seven Hebrew words that is the foundation of all theology. I'm just going to take on three of those with you right now. This is God's, I think what uh, uh, could sum up to be a threefold purpose statement. Uh, the first one would be to identify the creator. The second one, to explain the origin of the world. And the third one is a, kind of a twofold piece. It's to tie the work of God in the past to the work of God in the future. Granted, you would accept that if we have a beginning, there must also be an ending. So in the very beginning of Scripture, in Genesis 1-1, we find a beginning. So therefore, it raises the issue of there must be an ending. Okay, these are the first three things that God takes on in that first word that I told you. Bereshit, in the beginning. Bereshit is a one-word Hebrew word and for us, we use it as a, sent, uh, a phrase, in the beginning, just one word, Bereshit. And it takes no measure at all to say just that it, it was. It doesn't explain it. It doesn't say when, just that it was, in the beginning. Okay, Elohim. Whenever you see the word Elohim, and perhaps you've heard it used in Scripture before, you may not have known this, but Elohim is actually a plural word. It means more than one. So Bereshit, Elohim, means in the beginning, God, as in God's the three-head, Father, Son, Spirit, Elohim being a plural. There's no attempt to establish or prove the existence of God. The existence is assumed to be true. So if you've got your Bible open and you're looking at Genesis 1-1 right now, you might want to write next to that Psalms 14-1. Because what it says in Psalms 14-1 the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Scripture's authenticating. We don't need to justify that there was a beginning. There is a beginning. 
We don't need to justify that there was a God. He's saying, you don't need to justify me. I am self-sufficient. Now, here's a big mistake in theology. We assume, and I've heard this even taught in the Bible college I went to, that God somehow needed to create man for fellowship. That's a mistake. God does not need man. He didn't create us for fellowship. That would say that God is dependent upon us. And that's false. God created us for His own good pleasure. He didn't need us. He wasn't lonely. But Scripture says in Hebrews, for His pleasure we were created. And thirdly, the word bara, create. B-A-R-A. It's used only of God. It's only used three times in the creation story. And specifically, it's used of things that man cannot do. It's used in creation in Genesis 1-1, the creation of the universe. And then it's used in Genesis 1-21, the creation of the living creatures, all animal life. And then lastly, it's used in Genesis 1-27, the creation of man. And it's never used in the sense of the creation out of something. It's always ex nihilo, out of nothing. Bara. Those are the three words that are the foundation of all three theology. I'm going to stop right here before we move into verse 2 and tell you what one of my great fears is right now. In the 1970s, when I started Bible college, we taught that we were taught dogmatically that this is the authenticated Word of God. For Christian colleges to teach anything other than that would seem anathema. Today there is a coalition of 110 Christian colleges who kind of form a, a, a group together. They work together. They do defense on behalf of each other in Washington. They lobby together. But of the 110 Christian colleges that make up the Christian College Coalition, only six of them today take this and say it is inerrant and the creation story is without error. Why in the world, in a day when we live, when DNA is starting to reveal the truth of God, when the law of thermodynamics, the second law of thermodynamics is beginning to authenticate who we are as Christians is the right way. Why would Christian colleges begin to run away from that? It makes no sense. Christians, I think, are afraid. In contrast to that, it was only a few years ago that PBS ran a story. It's called Evolution. It was an update of the series, Evolution, that they did back in the 1980s. They took modern cameras and did a much more sophisticated explanation of the evolutionary process. As a result of that story running in 2001, 100 of the leading scientists across the nation took out a two-page ad the following week in a national magazine in response to what had just been run on PBS because of this statement. The PBS program said this, Evolution, in which this statement, no educated person any longer questions the validity of the theory of evolution, which we now know to be a simple fact. 
because scientists were so irritated by that statement, scientists from Yale, from Michigan, from Stanford, from Harvard, biologists who had built their entire history of their profession upon understanding microbiology, signed on to take out this ad. And this is what their ad said, summing it up. This is a one-sentence statement out of it. We are skeptical of the claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. That may not mean a whole lot to you, but in the science world, I can't believe they said that. In a day when the Bible is being authenticated by science, Christians are tempted to run from it perhaps to be politically correct. I have three, four, five more pages of notes here, and I can't get through them all. I'm going to give you a charge between now and next Sunday as we get into verse 2. I want you to begin thinking in advance about the meaning and the implications behind verse 2. And I'll, let me share that with you. I'm going to jump way forward. Don't worry about the PowerPoint up there, guys. Verse 2 says the earth, this, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the sur surface of the waters. You may have read that a hundred times if you were raised in church. You may not have read it recently. Let me give you some thoughts behind that verse to send you out with this week. Between now and next Sunday when you come back, when we dig into verse 2, the earth was... The third word in the sentence of the second verse, the earth was, actually more accurately interpreted, would be the earth became. The Hebrew word is haitah. The earth became formless and void. Now formless is the word tohu. It means a desolate place, a garbage dump, a waste. Bohu means a vacuity, a vacuum. Nothing could live within it. So when you read in verse 2, the earth was formless and void, the earth became a garbage dump. Now that may mess with your theology a little bit. All right? When you come back next week on verse 2, as we dig into that, you're going to understand the complexity around the Genesis story of how God took what was here and reshaped it as a perfect place for us to inhabit. This is all information. Information, if it's not applied to your life, it's meaningless. We're no different than the scientist. If we take it and just say, yeah, I know that. But when we understand that there's an incredible creator behind this, as complicated as science is, it's this simplistic that God, the Creator, did it for us, for His own good pleasure. How magnificent is that? We're going to enter back into just a couple songs of worship before you leave today, but before we do that, would you bow with me? Father, thank You so much for Your Word written as a record for us. You didn't mean it to be complicated unless we make it complicated. And we're guilty of that. 
I'm guilty of that, Father, and I don't want to make it complicated. We want to understand it in the way that you intended us to. So, Father, this next week, as we read through your word, what you recorded for us, what's been written down as a record of what you did, Father, we ask that you would make it real and that you would apply it to our hearts in such a way that we are moved to humility. Not to move to be proud, Father, but move to humility because we serve such an awesome God who willingly gave up his son to redeem us. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.